Second Samuel chapter 1. While we're turning there, uh, those of you who are with us here tonight, and perhaps you're without a Bible, we certainly want you to have a Bible to follow along with us. There are men coming up the aisles right now. If you just get their attention, they will get a Bible into your hands. Uh, just by way of reminder, uh, that not everyone comes on Sunday mornings, and so we have a Christmas Eve service, this coming Christmas Eve, and I believe, what do we run, six to seven, one-hour communion service, and so always a great time each year to celebrate, and so uh, be aware of that. I found uh, something in my box this week, and uh, it, it's this. Somebody gave me a... It's, for those of you who know the story, it's, it's kind of a cheap shot, really. Um, it just shows you how aggressive cat lovers are. They have to have the final word. I mean, I, I give us just an absolutely innocent illustration on a Sunday morning, and they're going to make a war out of it. So, but anyway, um, they got the, they got the, all the months here. Here's two little kitties in a teacup. I mean, those are really small. I mean, you saute those just right, and uh, that's really special. Um, but anyway, so I know there's a cat lover with it. I, this will never go. I don't use calendars, but I mean, even if I did, I, would, I wouldn't put this up. How would I get any work done looking at that face? Come on, now listen. So anybody want this thing? I, I, I know I'm not giving away like a super valuable gift. So nobody paid a lot of money for this. But okay, Evan, here, you can go ahead and have this. And... It, by the way, the gift was given anonymously, so this is, well, there's a lot we could say, but none of it's very safe at this moment. We've gone far enough. Second Samuel chapter 1, as we come into Second Samuel, uh, it's essentially a continuation of the account in First Samuel, but now Second Samuel, and in the uh, Hebrew Bible, it, you know, they've broken things up to give us more bite-sized size of the books and all. But in the Hebrew Bible, originally, First uh, and Second Samuel were all one book. And so they, where they divided it is, is uh, for our... God didn't put in the divisions. These are man-made divisions. But I don't complain against it. They're helpful. And the division is very well put because First Samuel ends with the uh, death of King Saul, the first king of Israel, and all of the drama that was associated with him. And now Israel is going to head into a new season in its history, and uh, even in, in that block of history having to do with its kings now, with King David. And so the focus becomes very much on King David all the way through Second uh, Samuel. And so a record of how David took what was... Uh, following Saul's reign, a very, very uh, divided nation, a very uh, beat-up nation, a defeated nation, uh, and to uh, how God used him to build it into a really a great and powerful nation, far beyond its borders and under, uh, under David's 
rule. Uh, Israel held more land, Solomon following him, but he built off of, off of his father's uh, exploits and greatness. But uh, Israel never has known since the, the kind of influence and uh, territory gains and these kind of things as they knew under King David. And so it, it tells us how David built the kingdom, I mean, uh, built Israel into a great and powerful nation, not just militarily and not just in terms of land, but uh, most importantly of all to David uh, spiritually. And so through, it takes us through the 40 years of his reign on to the end of his life. So it's like this um, a very beautiful kind of historical account of this uh, block of Israel's history, and it's very, very valuable to us. But it's also very, very valuable to us in what we learn spiritually from the life of David. And one of the things that, um, you know, the Bible's the best-selling book in, in human history and remains so to this day, And uh, but you might not want to be written in it because when God speaks about his servants in the Bible, he really does include warts and all. And he does that with David so that we can learn from David the things that are to be learned from uh, the, the great things that he did and then also to learn from some of his failures that were uh, significant. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul. So now we transition over with his death, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened. Now, remember that while Saul and uh, Israel have been preparing for battle against the Philistines, the Philistines attacking the nation of Israel uh, at, the, at the time that, that forced Saul into battle against the Philistines, that David had been dismissed from the Philistine arm, army, thankfully. He had then made the journey uh, from Gath all the way back to Ziklag, and when he had gotten to Ziklag, where he and his men had, had a, a city, a fortified city there, he discovered that it had been burned to the ground and all of his proper, all their property and their wives and children had been taken away. So then he caught up with his men with the Amalekites, defeated them, and then returned with their families to the city of Ziklag. So he's returned now to that city. He's been there for two days with his men, and now the third day occurs. So he, he knows that a great battle was going to occur between the Philistines and between Israel, but he's had a lot of things on his plate and probably hasn't been able to give much thought to it in terms of news of how that battle was was going, and so uh, he's back in Ziklag for three days when all of these uh, events uh, occur, completely unaware of what has occurred in the battle. In those days, news traveled pretty slow, that is, on foot. So they didn't have, like they could pick their phone up and go online and find out what the headlines are for Fox News or for Reference Desk or whatever it might be. They, could, uh, they, they had to wait for the news to come to them, and so it came slowly. And so on the third day, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp, the camp of Israel, and he came with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And these were signs of outward signs of mourning that men uh, and women would do to themselves 
to indicate to those that are around them that something has uh, broken their heart and has uh, lowered them all the way down to the ground in terms of the news that they're carrying. So when this man comes from the camp of Saul into the camp of David, everybody knows he's not carrying good news. Everybody knows this guy is carrying uh, very, very bad news. His whole demeanor, his whole outward appearance is, is carrying that. Now, he has to be uh, fairly tired. He has uh, traveled from Mount Gilboa, where the battle occurred, to Ziklag. He's done it in three days. It's a journey of about uh, 90 miles. He has covered that uh, 30 miles on average a day over kind of hill and dale, and he has done that following being engaged in uh, a battle all day and apparently had a, a part in that battle. And so he comes into the camp, and uh, so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and he prostrated himself before David. And so he, he obviously recognized, and as we'll see in just a moment, that David is going to be the next king, supposed to be the next king of Israel. And so he is acknowledging the fact that um, he recognizes that about David and, and he's expressing his submission to David as, as, as the next king of, of Israel. So David then poses a question to him. At this point, he doesn't know where he comes from or even that he's been a part of the battle or anything. So David said to him, uh, where have you come from? And so where are you bringing this bad news from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. I have come from the very battle between the children of Israel and the Philistines, having been a part of the camp of Israel. And then David said to them, how did the matter go? And notice he said further, please tell me. Once he knows that this guy is carrying the first news that he has received of what has happened to Israel in this battle, I mean, he's very anxious to know how the battle went. And the uh, man answered him and said, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people, speaking of the Jews, are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So here is the man's report. Israel's been defeated. Not only have they been defeated, but it was a massacre. There are all kinds of Jewish blood has been spilt on the battlefield, many dead, including uh, Saul and Jonathan. Now, this news must have hit him, if you want to just try and get a sense for the emotion of all of this. This news must have hit uh, David like a ton of bricks. Because all along, even in his conversations with Jonathan, not so much the death of Saul, though he's sympathetic related to that, but he and Jonathan, and Jonathan and he were kindred spirits in the things of the Lord. And even in the final time that Jonathan had been with David, Jonathan had um, communicated his hope, and it was David's hope too, that David would one day be the king of Israel as God had promised, and that Jonathan would become a officer under him, would become a support to him, becoming and being the greatest king that that God had called him to be. So there was the hope in David's heart that Jonathan would survive all of this and their relationship together would be able to, to continue with him as the king. And so here he, all the hopes that both he and Jonathan had in that vein toward uh, concerning the future, all of these are dashed with, with this news. David then asked the young man, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan 
his son are dead. How do, how, what evidence can you supply to me that this is the truth? David's been around long enough. He's been a leader long enough to know you can't just believe anything that people are telling you. So he's asking for uh, some kind of uh, uh, verification that this, this news and information is good intelligence or that it is correct. And so he asks for that verification. The man is going to supply him with two pieces of verification. Number one, that he was an eyewitness to these events. And, and number two, he's going to uh, produce for David something from Saul's body that uh, you could only take off of the dead body uh, of, of a king. And so he said, please, please tell me, uh, the, um, how do you know that, can you verify this in some way? And then the young man who told him, said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, and he reports his part in Saul's death now, there was Saul, and he was leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen of the Philistines followed hard after him. Remember, they were trying to kill him to cut off the head of the army. And when he looked behind him and he saw me, he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. Oy vey, where are these Amalekites? Everywhere I turn, it's an Amalekite. But this guy was an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for my anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so I stood over him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Now, here is, there is two different accounts given concerning Saul's death. The account that is given there in chapter 31 of uh, 1 Samuel, where we are told, that Saul, when he recognized that he was mortally wounded by the archers, he asked his armor bearer to put him out of his misery and to kill him in order that he would not fall into the hands of the Philistines alive and basically be tortured to death. The armor bearer, his whole training was to protect the king. He couldn't bring himself to do it and refused to do it, so Saul took a sword put it up right against where his heart would have been, and he pushed himself down on the sword as it was braced against the ground in an attempt to commit suicide. When the armor bearer looked at Saul and saw what he had done, he assumed that Saul was dead as a result of this, and so he then killed himself uh, because he had been unable to protect the king. So he killed himself. And this account is only different really in, in one uh, kind of small way, and that is that the Amalekite claims then to have come upon the scene, finding Saul still alive, where Saul is then pleaded with him to take his life. Now, many people, which he then accommodated Saul in doing that, because he felt Saul's already dead, there's no way he's going to survive these wounds, and so, so he killed Saul. Now, some people look at this and they see the, the two accounts as being contradictory, that one, somebody here is lying and probably the Amalekite. If anybody's lying, obviously it would be the Amalekite here. I don't view these as contradictory accounts. They are, uh, it's very easy to me to look at them as complementary accounts. 
that it is exactly as the Amalekites said that it would be. He did come upon Saul. Saul did attempt suicide. He was unsuccessful. The armor bearer uh, believed that he had done that, took his own life. Life was still in Saul, and now he called for the first person that was near him to put him out of his misery before the Philistines would take his body. And so this is the, this is the account that, that he, he brings, and, and uh, I, I think that uh, we're going to see he's got a couple of things that, that actually back the uh, kind of truthfulness of his claim. Number one is that he brings to David the uh, kingly articles that he has in his possession. And then we're going to all see, so see that David is going to take him very much at his word. So he gives this account. And then he says, beyond this eyewitness account in terms of verification, he said, I took the crown that was on Saul's head and the bracelet that was on his arm, arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. In the ancient world, the kings would wear a small crown. Evidently, Saul was doing it in the battle, also wore a bracelet, which would have been worn on his uh, upper arm. For this Amalekite to possess the crown... And the bracelet of King Saul was an evidence that two would, undeniable evidence to David that King Saul was dead. A king would never give that up unless both he had been killed and everyone around him had also been killed. So it was very strong evidence to David, David related to, to this story. And so he produces these and he brought them to David. And therefore David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them and so did all of the men who were with him. And so again, in that ancient world, when they would tear their clothes in mourning, the tearing of the clothes represented the out, it was an outward representation of the condition of their heart. Sometimes we'll say in this culture where um, some bad news comes to us and we'll say, that tore my heart out. That tore my heart in two. And, and so that's what they would do. This news impacted them so greatly. They, a very kind of demonstrative people, a very expressive people, and, and so they would uh, let it be known in this way. And so this news really hit David hard. It really hit all of these uh, men very, very hard. And the reason uh, that they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so uh, they were mourning because of the defeat of, of so many in Israel, including Saul and including Jonathan. It was a national defeat. It was a national disaster to be defeated by the Philistines this way. And it was David's way of communicating that even though he was in the land of the, of the Philistines, and he was at this when this news came to him, but it, it shows that David's heart and all of the heart of his men were completely, not with the Philistines, but completely with the future and the welfare uh, of, of Israel. And so, the, it, it, funny, you would you'd look at this and you would think that Jonathan, or you would think that David and his men would have thrown a party to hear Saul was dead. This guy's hunted them down for ten years. He's made life a, a nightmare for them for ten years. And, and, and would have killed any one of them and every one of them if he'd have gotten his hands on them. 
And yet here they hear the news of the fall of Saul, his son, and in the men of, of Israel, and instead of gloating or celebrating over all of it, uh, they began to, to mourn as a result of it. The Bible teaches us as Christians, and it's Old Testament and New Testament, that we are not to rejoice when judgment and trouble comes to an enemy. One of the reasons we're not to do that is that God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel and said, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Here's an interesting proverb in, in speaking of this subject. Proverb 24, verses Uh, Verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Now, why would God have to tell us that except that it's the temptation? Ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch, whatever, how that goes. I mean, it's it's in us, right from Adam and Eve. You like the song too. (laughs) He said, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and the displease him and he turn away his wrath from him here's jesus's word on all this he said you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but he said i say to you speaking to us as christians love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you that that's a reason word you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. I like this one also in Romans chapter 12, when this kind of thing happens in our lives. Paul wrote and he said, Repay no one evil for evil. It's a temptation. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, nor give place to wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if I'm, if I'm in the Amalekites' um, sandals, and I bring this news, and we're going to see in just a few minutes that uh, he did not expect this reaction from David. And I bring this news of Saul's death, and I bring the evidences of Saul's death. I'm expecting David and his men to be very excited about this news. We're going to see that David speaks of this and knowing the motive of of the man before the man is ultimately executed. David declared that this man came in thinking that he would be rewarded by uh, David over this news. He brought all of this in in order to get something from from David. And uh, so if I was this man, I would look at this and I'd say, my plan is going sideways here. I'd become very, very uncomfortable because David is not responding in the way that he expected uh, that it would. He didn't rejoice over God's judgment in uh, another man's life. Now David then said to the young man who told him, he said, where are you from? And he said, I'm a son of an alien. I'm an Amalekite. And David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
Now, if this man wasn't uncomfortable before this point in time, he ought to be very uncomfortable with how all of this is developing. Why would he ask this man, David, ask this Amalekite what his or, national origin was? And I, and I think that, the, that David was wondering, where did this guy come from and, and that he could be so ignorant of David's respect for Saul's life and unwillingness to kill Saul over and over again while he was being hunted by Saul. And, and so David then confronts him about his, his lack of fear in killing the Lord's anointed. And, and David's use of that phrase, the Lord's anointed, indicated that even though Saul was his enemy, again as we've seen, he recognized that God had raised Saul up and anointed him as the first king of Israel and that it was God's business to take Saul out. And so here is uh, David, he had, time and again he had refused to harm Saul because of this anointing of God upon his life. And uh, here is this man who steps in, thinks nothing of any of it, and expects to be rewarded by David for killing uh, his, his enemy. And so the, the, uh, the messenger is a, he's an Amalekite, he's an outsider, and uh, evidently he doesn't understand what uh, the children of Israel understood, and that is that the crown is given by God, and you can't uh, change that and, and hasten God's replacement by uh, murdering a stranger. So David then orders the man's execution in verse 15. He called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And so he struck him so that he died. David did not execute the man for being an Amalekite, but he executed him because of his confession for his actions, for having put to death someone that he should have tried to save. Again, let me read from you in chapter 4 of this same book, Second Samuel, what David, David gives us insight into his thinking here in all of this when he declares there in Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 10, when someone told me, speaking of this Amalekite, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good news. I arrested him, and I had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought that I would give him a reward for his news. And so this guy's a bit of a mercenary. He's come in. He saw that David, he saw that Saul was suffering and his mind, his motive in killing Saul was not, I'm going to put him out of his misery before he's tortured by the Philistines. He thought, man, if I can get this crown in this bracelet and get it to David with the news that Saul is dead, David is really going to reward me for this. And so David saw through the whole thing and ordered him executed for having, uh, having done what he shouldn't have done. He should have done everything he could have done uh, to save, his, uh, save Saul's life instead of uh, killing him. And so he declared to him, your blood is on your own head. In other words, David is saying, I don't want this blood... I don't want, he knows what the guy's doing. He knows the manipulation that's happening. In essence, he's saying, I don't want this blood on me. I don't want this near my kingdom. I don't want this to have anything to do with me. Your blood is completely on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed 
the Lord's anointed. And then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And so, uh, as a part of this whole news uh, of the death of Saul and Jonathan and the defeat that occurred, and the children of Israel, uh, David wrote this song out of all of this sorrow that he is experiencing uh, over this death. The title of it is the Song of the Bow. We don't really know why it's entitled that, except we're going to see in this uh, song in just a, a minute or two, we're going to see that uh, Saul's weapon of choice in battle was a sword. But Jonathan's weapon of choice in battle appeared to be the bo a bow. Remember when he was signaling David earlier, when David was just beginning to flee from Saul and to, beginning to realize that Saul is throwing spears to try and kill him and all, that, that he's got to get out of here. And, and Jonathan communicated uh, to David by the shooting of a bow, an, an arrow by a bow. And so that he seemed to be very, very proficient in this uh, weapon of warfare, and so entitling it here, this uh, song of the bow, probably uh, speaking of, of Jonathan here. It is interesting that when you look at, well, the, the, the song here, David orders that the song would be taught to all of the children of Judah. So he says basically, listen, I don't want to just write this lament or this funeral dirge for this particular event. I want all of, the, all of the young people, the children of Israel, to memorize this particular lamentation for the dead. So there's something about this song that David considers to be so valuable that he wants all of the young people to have the value that it has to be built into uh, their lives. And I think that what David is wanting to build into people's lives, our lives included tonight, and through this lamentation, is how we are to conduct ourselves upon hearing of the death or hearing of the fall of an enemy. Again, when David hears of Saul's death, I mean, in the natural, in the carnal, you would have thought he would have just, again, celebrated through a big party and headed into some, or, or just gone silent and not said anything about him and let his silence speak to everybody about what a rat he thought that Saul was, or to go into some kind of a rant and, and play out, you know, ten years so everybody could hear what he did to me here and he did to me there and he's robbed me of ten years of my life and this scoundrel and the... I mean, that's what you would expect from him upon hearing the news. And yet, instead of all of that, David produces a eulogy. I mentioned last time that sometimes there's a little... The culture's changing in the world that we're living in, that there are things that older people know that haven't been passed down uh, broadly to the next generation. And I mean, I'm talking about my generation. And one of those things is that in a funeral service, there's always a section of the service that is given over to eulogies, where people get up and they bring forth remembrances of the deceased. And a couple times through the years, I've had to remind people in very difficult circumstances that the eulogy, the word eulogy means to speak well. 
And if you can't speak well of the the dead in that environment, then don't say anything about them because you will regret it as a Christian if you go into a rant uh, in, in that particular environment. So David doesn't go into a rant. He writes a eulogy and speaks well even of Saul. And to do this, I think, is to be like Christ. I think of Jesus when he wrote his seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And to each one of those churches, he tried as hard as he could to find something to commend in them and to encourage them in before he headed to the corrective part of, of those epistles, those letters. Now, sadly, there were two churches that he couldn't find anything good to say about, but it wasn't that he didn't try. And in all of the others, he encouraged them. This is what I see. You're doing good. He saw the good and then headed into the correction. Now, he talks about this book of Jasher, and this book is mentioned also in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, probably a collection of poems some kind of, you know, artistic kind of writings uh, that are odes that were written um, celebrating great men in Israel's history or commemorating great events in Israel's history as a record. And so David indicated that this, uh, this song that he was writing here, this lamentation that was to be included in that particular book as well as uh, in the Scripture. The book of Jasher was well known to the readers of those, uh, of those days, uh, but it no longer uh, exists because it isn't a part of inspired Scripture. And uh, so David said, I, but I want you to make it a part of that particular historical record also. And then, so here is his lamentation. He declared, verse 19, the beauty of Israel. He's talking about Saul there. Funny thing about David. There's a beautiful thing about David. He really had the ability as a leader to forgive and to forget. And and he, he could really, all this stuff that's been done against him, this is no act, this is no kind of putting something together that he doesn't feel. He really honestly is looking for, what good can I say about this man? Because there was good about Saul. His kingdom began very, very well. It unraveled as time went on. He was a great and brave soldier. He was very tall, very strong, all of these assets that he had. And he had done great things for the nation. He had done more harm than he had done good, but he had done some good. So here's this David is willing to look past all of the bad things and to look and say, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Speaking of the death of Saul and Jonathan and all of the men that had been killed in the battle. He said, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those were both Philistine cities, two of the five great cities of the Philistine kingdom. 
And he knew the news of this defeat of Israel, the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan. It would come then to these great cities, and he's, and he's already feeling what is going to happen. He knew what it was to have the women sing to him following the death of Goliath and the return to other battles against the Philistines where they said, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. That was the place of women in that culture. They sang the song of celebration when their victory victorious army came back because it was their husbands, their fathers, their sons that went out to battle. And in that sense, they had the greatest stake in the battle and in victory. And so David now realizes that this news is going to now go to those cities and what Israel had been to get, able to celebrate in the past, victory over her enemies. This would now be celebrated by the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the, of the uncircumcised triumph. And so David can just picture it in his mind. This news has come to me, you know, three days away from the battle there at Mount Gilboa. And now it's going to be going into Ashkelon. It's going to be going into Gath. He can see the people celebrating. And as much as his heart is broken, they're going to be celebrating all of this. And it breaks his heart. And then he said, on mountains of Gilboa, where the site of the battle where the battle was fought. He said, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. He called a drought to be upon that, that mountain, barrenness upon that region as the site of this battle. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. See, I may be boring some of you to tears related to this, it's my way. But I love this song so much, I'm, I'm not going to race through it, and, and, uh, it, even at the risk of... Well, basically, I've got the microphone. I'm going to do precisely what I... But here's David. He, he's he's a, a soldier himself. He's a warrior himself. And he puts himself in Saul's place in that battle. And he talks there about the, how the shield of the mighty is cast away there in the midst of the battle. And he can spot Saul. You've got to give Saul credit. He didn't run from the heat of, of the battle. I mean, he's running so he doesn't get tortured as the battle's been lost. But he fought right in the, in the hot spot. He wasn't the general up on some kind of a hill overlooking where all the carnage was taking place. He was in the middle of it. He's a brave man. And so here he is, and, and John, David can... Look at him and know that is their, their forces are being overwhelmed as even Saul's being overwhelmed and he's needing to lighten his load over the intensity of the hand-to-hand -hand combat that now he throws off his shield in order to lighten his load and with the limited strength and resource and energy that he has as the battle has gone on for some length of time. And he speaks then of the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. They would take their shields into battle. Shields in those days were, uh, the outer coat of it was leather. And they would oil it before they went into battle so that when a, a spear or when a arrow or some kind of a sword would uh, go against it, it would glance off of the oil of, of, the, of the shield. And here he speaks of the fact that there's no more oil on Saul's shield. It's covered with dirt. 
It's covered with mud. It's covered with blood. No more oil. Again, the intensity. He feels the battle that, that went on. Uh, the battle that would kill someone as brave as a Saul. And from the blood of the slain, he said, and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. And so he extols the bravery of Saul and the bravery of, of Jonathan uh, here. And so you've got this whole, he speaks of the, the bow of Jonathan, again, his preferred uh, weapon in battle, the sword of Saul, and speaking of of uh, how it is that the, um, you know, Jonathan is keep shooting those arrows with, with accuracy, the sword of Saul, the, the destructiveness and his use of it to, so powerfully in the battle. And he talks about the blood of the slain, the fat of the mighty. In other words, how, how uh, uh, you know, uh, they're they great, Craft, their great skill in warfare, blood and fat, and this is what you would have in the middle of, of battle in those kind of days, and, and talking about uh, their, their bravery and how the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. And so Jonathan here is a, a case of the fact that he stood in the battle. There was nothing that, uh, it, no matter how heated the battle became. He didn't, you know, look for a place to escape from the battle. And that's, that's the kind of person you want to go to war with. You think about, he, Jonathan was the kind of guy, he's a leader. And you put him right in the thick of the battle, the hardest part of the battle, and there's something internally within him. He cannot leave that battle. He's going to die there in that battle with the men that he's fighting with. Or he's going to be victorious, but he's not going to flee. David understood it about Jonathan. And all this is churning within him. And he said, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, speaking of their relationship with one another. Jonathan, Jonathan maintained a close relationship with his father, Saul. Um, and it wasn't easy to maintain a close relationship with his father, Saul. Because Jonathan was a deeply spiritual man, and Saul was an absolutely carnal man. You couldn't even say that he was saved. I don't know what his eternal destination is. It's not my business. But it, even despite all of that, Jonathan remained loyal to his father, wanted to be a blessing to his father in his life. And David said, in their death they were not divided they are swifter than eagles. Again, maybe a reference to Jonathan's weaponry of, of arrows in, in battle. They are stronger than lions, speaking of the strength and the precision of Saul's use of the sword in battle. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury and who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. And he reminded them, that Saul wasn't all bad, that he had brought a, some stabilization to the nation as a king. He had, he had defeated their perennial enemies, the Philistines, over and over again, and had brought a prosperity into the land by virtue of defeating their enemies. And so he reminds them to the women, look at the clothes you wear. 
You've never, no generation of children of Israel have known clothes like this. The beauty of that is because Saul set a context that allowed that to happen. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And so, Jonathan, David closes this uh, whole uh, hymn and, and lamentation almost to the last verse, praising Jonathan, praising him for his, his bravery in battle. And then at verse 26, he expresses his personal affection for Jonathan. How much uh, this, and how great this loss was of Jonathan to him. And in verse 26, he, David speaks of his love for Jonathan. He calls him my brother. Now, in those days, in that nation, blood was everything. Family was everything. And so for David to come and say of someone outside of his bloodline and call him a brother, it was, it was really to to commend him and honor him in a, in a powerful way. He said, I loved you as, a, as I would love a brother, or I, how I would love a family member. And David and Jonathan, great kindred spirit with one another. They love the Lord with a, a comparable love. They're men of faith. They were men of action. Deeply, deeply spiritual men. And in the death of Jonathan, David lost his greatest friend he had ever known in life. And I don't know that David ever experienced that kind of friendship the rest of his life. It was there for a season. And then he was going to become a king. And I don't know, certainly not from the record of Scripture, saw that he ever had a friend like that ever again. And then in verse 26, at the end of that, he speaks of Jonathan's love for him. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And what David is doing in saying this is David is acknowledging the great sacrificial, other-centered love that Jonathan had shown to him. And when he speaks about the love of women here, he is speaking of speaking very highly of women. Women um, in the, the, uh, as, as the great expressors of love in life, of other-centered love, sacrificial love. And you look at a woman as she expresses love toward her husband, the love that she expresses toward her children, this is a sacrificial love. This is a giving love. It's a beautiful, beautiful love. I don't know that you can get something comparable to describe a love out of a man. So he says, when I want to think about the love that you had for me, I can't go to the male side of things. I've got to go to the female side of things. And the closest thing that I've seen to the love that you had for me is the love that I see of a woman for her husband and of a woman, a mother for her children. And that's the love that you had for me. That was the sacrifice of it. And Jonathan, time and time again, laid aside his own rights, his own privileges, 
in order to push David forward, to give David, you know, the limelight or to give him encouragement that he's going to be the king of Israel. And that's what Jonathan was, was, uh, David was talking about in terms of, of Jonathan's love surpassing the love of women. It has nothing to do with whether David loved Jonathan more than women. This is what he's saying. And he said, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? What do I do now, Lord? I'm the king of Israel. I'm in Ziklag, Philistine territory. Now what in the world do you want me to do? I'm yours. So he asked this prayer. Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And God said, to Hebron. Sounds like a couple of men talking, doesn't it? Very straightforward. It's a beautiful example. Prayer doesn't need to be all... It can be flowery and eloquent. Praise the Lord for that. Be very clear and direct also. So God said, I want you to go to Hebron now. No more of this Philistine land stuff. Hebron was a very, very significant city in the land of Israel and in the area of the tribe of of Judah and David was from the tribe of Judah in southern Israel so God tells him this is where I want you to go and so David went up there his two wives also with him Ahinoam the Jezreelitist and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite and David brought up the men who were with him every man with his household and so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron and then the men of Judah came and they were and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So here are his brethren. They come along and uh, they recognize that David is supposed to be the king uh, over Israel. And, uh, and, and so they're going to be the first ones to kind of jump on and, and anoint him. Probably knew very well that David had been anointed as king ten plus years earlier in Bethlehem by Samuel. And so they anointed him and said, David, we recognize you as the next king of Israel. And then they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so they informed him of of the great bravery that uh, the men of Jabesh-Gilead had done after Saul and his sons had been killed and their bodies had been mutilated, they'd been beheaded, Saul at least had been, bodies had been pinned and attached to the walls of, of Bet-Shan and the men of Jabesh-Gilead remembering how Saul had rescued them from uh, the king of Amnon who had come and threatened them that he wanted their right eye in order to ha- make peace with them and Saul had led a great victory of the children of Israel against uh, to uh, bring relief to the men of Jabesh Gilead the men of Jabesh Gilead for all of Saul's problems they never forgot the good thing that he did to, to them and and so they sent in great risk to their own lives they went in and they rescued these bodies and then gave them a uh, a respectful uh, burial so David is informed of all of this again all this news is coming to him in layers and so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and he said to them you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him and now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you 
and I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. So he really praises them and commends them for their bravery. And he said, now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has appointed anointed me king over them. Now, sometimes you'll read or hear related to this passage that basically what David is doing and coming to the men of Jabesh Gilead as, as he's just kind of doing a power play with them. So uh, the area of Jabesh Gilead was down in the south toward Judah where, where David was. And so David kind of sends a messenger to them and he's just playing the politician. And uh, boy, I heard the good thing that you did for Saul and Jonathan and the, and the other sons that were killed in the battle and the bones. And thank you for your bravery. And God's going to bless you for what you did. And I'll make sure that you're blessed also. And oh, by the way, the men of Judah have made me the king of Israel. And hint, 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 maybe you want to make me king also. That's not what he's doing here. The men of Jabesh Gilead, when they find out and found out that the men of Judah had made David the next king of Israel, because of the bloodthirstiness of that ancient world, now Saul is dead, they've been respectful toward his body and the body of his sons, and then now David has become the next king of, of Israel, and they have just been involved in rescuing the bones of the king that attempted to kill him for ten years, and they're thinking it have to be thinking in their mind that David is going to view what we have just done and in, intended to be a gesture of loyalty and beauty. That David, if he's anywhere near as insecure as Saul is, he will view that as a threat against him being the king. He'll view that kindness to Saul. As, as being an um, expression of the fact that they reject, we're going to reject David as king, and then, oh no, David is going to put an army together and wipe all of us out. That's what they're thinking, because that's the way it worked in the ancient world. And David, again, it's his sensitivity. He just writes, as soon as he hears what they did, he thinks to himself, oh no. They're going to hear that I've become king and they're going to realize what they've done out of respect for the king that has done these things to me and they're going to expect ill of me as a result of it. And so Dave, David sends, I call him Dave. <laughs> David sends messengers to him and says, listen, you don't have anything to fear in me. What you did was a great thing. And far from experiencing any persecution against, uh, from me against you, I'll reward you when I'm able to do it. Let's stop there tonight. But I want to close by giving a, just a couple lessons before we maybe enjoy a couple of worship songs. Because it turns into a whole new thing uh, beginning in, in verse 8. I want to return to David's um, handling of the death of Saul and his lamentation. 
We just recognize in all of it. David was just determined to set his mind on the good things associated with Saul's life. I don't say that it's always true, because it isn't always true. But typically, there is something good that can be remembered from a person's life, even the life of an enemy. Very few people are purely evil. They do exist, but very few are purely evil. And there was good in Saul's life. And David took and, through this lamentation, tried to remind the nation of Israel of, to remember the good thing in Saul's life, too. I think that if you were to open up the Bible here to Second Samuel chapter 1 and just start to read through all of this that we've just read, and you didn't know all of the history that preceded it, you didn't know anything of Saul's persecution of David, you would have guessed that the death of Saul, and in that death that David had lost his best friend rather than his greatest enemy. And when you look at how David handles the death of this nemesis, this enemy of his, you look at David and you think, we look at it and we say, I like that in David. Do we like the David that we read about here or would we have preferred a David that upon hearing the news of Saul's death, he just put a fist in the air and let out a holler and said, let's have a feast tonight. The man is dead. Or do we like this David who mourns over even the death of an enemy and to remem- tries to remember and put the mind of the people around him on the good things. There were few, but there were good things to remember about Saul. And I think we like this David. We like his humility and his spiritual maturity and his fear of the Lord. And the thing that we need to remember, and one of the applications from this passage is, what is true of David is also true of us. We are watched as Christians. And I think one of the times that we are especially watched as Christians by other people is when our enemies fall or when they're humbled by God. And I think that this is put in the Bible in order that they would see this kind of grace, even in the Old Covenant, this kind of grace in David's life and our life too. As, you, as has been noted related to all of this, it, someone has said, when you read this lamentation apart from history, you'd think Saul was a great man. And you read this song aware of the history, and you think David's a great man. David would write later in Psalm 37, he said, he would say, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. And He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And I have never known God not to do it in a David's life. I have watched people be persecuted. 
I have watched them be slandered mercilessly. Their character destroyed by one or two or ten people. And and it's one of the great things about walking with the Lord for a while. You learn some things. And as hard as that is for a person to go through that, you realize all that person has to do is just wait. Because the day is coming where God is going to bring out their righteousness and the falseness of the accusations that are being against them. God will make that person's righteousness as clear and unmistakable as the sun is at noon in that great Mediterranean area of the world. And I've never known it not to happen. And when God does it, it's not a matter of if He's going to do it, but when He does it, we will be tempted to celebrate. But if we resist the temptation and handle it the way that David handles it, we will be thankful in the coming years that we have. We're going to see over and over again in David's life that he was a man who, again, as I mentioned earlier, he chose to quickly forget when he was personally wronged, leave it in God's hands, move on with life, God's calling upon his life. And I just think that's such a vital characteristic in, in any leader who hopes to live free of, of bitterness and, and the defilement of it. And of course it's to be like Christ, who as he hung upon that cross, and I, I, in, 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 while he hung on that cross, I've got several thoughts floating around at once, which is dangerous for me, But as he hung upon that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the son of David takes it higher than David himself. This is a beautiful, beautiful chapter in David's life that he could look back on for the rest of his life with great, great satisfaction so for us here this evening these things are going to happen to you there will be souls in the Christian life sometimes I hear about people or I talk with people and say I don't go to church anymore because I've been hurt there listen if everybody left church and did not attend who's been hurt in church there would be no church anywhere The fact of the matter is the hurt that we experience even at the hands of other Christians, whether it's deliberate or whether it's unintentional, it forces us to grow in Christ-likeness in a way that we would never otherwise be forced to grow. I look at Jesus' commitment to his bride, his commitment to the body of Christ, despite the pain that we sometimes cause for him, I know individually and as a whole. There's something about all of this 
that if we look at it and we want to make an excuse of it, we never want it to happen in our lives, but there's something of it, if it didn't happen, we would be dwarfed in the area of our development and in our appreciation for the greatness of Christ's love for His church. We wouldn't be like Christ in the way that we are. This kind of thing will happen. And when it happens and God humbles your enemies, this is the person you want people to see. And this is the kind of response that you'll look back on with pleasure and know it was God who did it through you when you respond in that way. So we'll stop there tonight and ask the worship team to come up at this point in time.